Um, if you guys will turn um, in your bulletins to the um, scriptural, uh, the scripture reading, we're going to be looking at Second Corinthians today. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations to you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I plan to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly, or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, or no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was, um, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes us both, makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He has anointed us, set his seal of ownership upon us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness that it was in order to to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. This is God's word. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Bill. I've heard that story about 20 times, and I love it every time. Um, if I uh, if I just say that to you one time when you're coming up for the supper, don't be surprised. You know, I don't know what it'll be, but I'll just throw one on you uh, like that. No, it's something else. It's really, uh, I don't know if you know how odd that is. You know, Episcopalians are a little bit like Presbyterians. They don't really uh, do a lot of um, innovation during the service, you know, like when they're coming down front or anything like that. It's usually the right, you know, read off the book. And uh, it is a testimony to the Lord's hand on Bill's life, uh, a beautiful thing. I got to tell you a story about commitment or my lack thereof. Uh, I was, um, I dated Amanda for six and a half years before um, we got married. And uh, uh, that meant that through some pretty young years in life, uh, we were hanging out a lot. And uh, I was a little bit like, um, uh, I was the guy who was always trying to win over the parents and stuff like that. You know, I was that guy. Uh, and so uh, early on when we were dating, her brothers were 10 and 11 at the time. Now they're 20-something and 20-something. But uh, they were 10 and 11 at the time, and I was, and I was living about two hours um, from my home, and I was going to school and staying with friends of the family, the same school Amanda was going to. Uh, but I was trying to get in with the boys, 10 and 11-year-olds, and I was like, you know, uh, you should come down to Fort Rucker with me one day and we'll go to the, uh, the aviation museum and we'll leave Amanda. You know, it'll just be a guy's time and we'll do that. I was staying in the summer, uh, in, uh, Columbus, Georgia, which was two hours from Fort Rucker at the time. And I was like, okay, we'll do this. And, you know, I meant it reasonably, but I was also trying to impress Sandra Carver, uh, Amanda's mom and dad. And, you know, I was trying to work my magic, uh, got a game like that. And I was trying to win the boys over. You know, I had to work it all out, had it all figured out. 
well, you know, one week would come up and I'd be like, oh, yeah, I want to go do this. Or another week would come up and I was going to do this. Well, come August. Uh, and school's about to start back for me. And uh, we have no more weekends left besides one. One that I was already uh, dedicated to do something with someone else. And so, of course, I've mostly forgot about it the whole summer long. But the boys, being 10 and 11, and actually trusting something I said, which was legitimate, uh, uh, said, so, Georgia, when are we going to go to Fort Rucker? Can we go this week? And I got that blank stare, but still smiley, you know, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to do it this week, or, you know, maybe we'll do it sometime in the fall, pushing it on and off and off. The boys were devastated. They didn't express that devastation to me. They did, in fact, express their devastation to their mother. Sandra Carver was uh, not just Amanda's mom and my mother-in-law and future mother-in-law at that point. She was a mentor to me, uh, one of the pers- people who most discipled me growing up. And uh, she got that mentor hat on. And she said, this isn't about them. This is about you. Your words matter. You said you were going to do something. You need to figure out a way to make this happen. Now, I didn't grow up in an environment like that. My, my family is much more, um, I won't say laid back because that sounds good. Uh, uh, we, we, uh, you know, if my dad said I'll be home in 15 minutes, somewhere in the next hour and a half he'd show up. And that was just kind of normal. Uh, so it was a total culture shock to me to have this kind of world. And it still is. You can ask uh, the very first five years of our marriage included many fusses about this very instance and how this works. Um, uh, this very, not that instance, but this very type of thing. And I realized that what I loved most were options. I need to have lots of options. Not commitments, options. And if I could write this sermon and uh, write a sermon as a, um, uh, 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 if it wasn't already kind of pre-titled, um, I would say contra options or contra optinumusness, you know, something in Latin. It would be against options, and there's a long history of good theological work that's like contra Pelagius and contra Mundum and contra. So I would do contra options pro commitmentus unum. So be against, um, sorry, David Speakman, I'm really sorry. You Latin teacher, scholar, I really am sorry. Not that sorry, it's kind of funny. Um, but it would be against these, against these things and for commitment. And commitment's a really bad word. Committing to something is kind of a bad word in our day and age, in our society. Um, and so I want to kind of talk to you about t- two backgrounds. One is the background of this letter, this little portion of the letter you get. It does, it seems kind of an odd letter. You're kind of getting this, uh, uh, it doesn't kind of read like a narrative. There's uh, a lot of things going on. So I want to give you a background in Corinth, but then I want to talk about our cultural background and where we are uh, in this day and age. Okay, so first the background in Corinth, what's going on here. Is Paul's an apostle, which means that he is a, uh, uh, an appointed leader. Jesus appointed him as a, uh, as a person to go and preach the good news, um, uh, that, that Jesus was uh, their forgiver of sins, that he was Lord and King, and that he was a Savior and sanctifier of our lives. This meant that he had a level of authority. And uh, guess what? It's no different now than it was then. People who are interacting with people with authority tend to, hmm, you know, have a propensity to undo that authority, right? 
to kind of go, well, resist that authority. That, that coupled with the fact that the way he was appointed as an, as an apostle was different than the way the other apostles were appointed. So there's this kind of like, he's a little suspect. Um, especially when you add that to the fact that uh, he's a person of authority and we always try to resist authority any chance we get, just a nature uh, kind of problem here. Um, but then multiply the, that by the fact that, that Corinth is a mess. Corinth's kind of a train wreck of power. The first letter to Corinth that we have is, um, is a letter that talks about you, some of you are following Apollos and some of you are following Paul and some of you are following Cephas. Everybody's following somebody else. And so there's this kind of power struggle that's going on. I'm about to lose these pieces of paper, sorry. Maybe it'll stay. I'll do like this the whole time. Uh, so, um, so there's a, uh, there's this power struggle going on and there's these folks called, um, sometimes commentators call them the true apostles or the super apostles and they, that should be in quotes because they're really not. Uh, but they're in there and they're trying to cause this division and kind of win people over with suspect of, of who Paul is and they're, they're trying to kind of, uh, to cause some dissension because they're winning, trying to win him over to, uh, win them, win the, the Corinthians over to themselves. Um, but this is a problem because, uh, because, because Paul needs to preach to them good news, the, the good word to encourage them along. And so it's being, uh, uh, undone. And now Paul does something that's really different for what Paul was, uh, what you would expect of Paul is that he has RSVP that he's coming to see them and now he's not. And so now they've used that to say, oh no, these, Paul is a person of worldly wisdom. He doesn't really care about these things. He's not committed to you. And so he's got this issue he has to deal with. They're questioning his commitment, questioning his character, questioning his relationship with God, his apostolicity, his apostolicity. Um, uh, and Corinth is dividing around that. And so he has to write to them. Commitment matters. They see that it matters. And they're saying, you didn't even RS, you RSV positively didn't show up. That proves something about what you believe about us and how committed you are to us and how committed you are to this God you say you serve. Fast forward. Christ Central's background, or maybe generational background, cultural background. Maybe it's a church cultural background. Where are we in this? We almost have the absolute opposite um, response to this. So you don't show up. You RSVP, no big deal. Something better came up. Options. You had something else to do. And you know this because Evite has a maybe button. (laughs) You don't have to commit. Monday, you get the Evite. You're like, man, it's going to be nice. Thursday, I'll decide for Friday night. Maybe Friday morning, I'll decide for Friday night. I'll hit maybe, or worse, those of us who are even less committal won't even hit maybe. That's too much commitment. And we'll wait, and we get a better Evite. Who knows, friends might be going out of town. Whatever it is, Evite has maybe. Can you imagine the wax-sealed RSVPs that had you wrote back, maybe, No, no. commit, make a decision, show up. Yes, you're right. You will lose another option. Okay. That's the way we live in. Some of us can't choose on a career because this means that next summer or the summer or some summer, whenever I want to, I will not be able to be a Colorado rafting guide. That will lose that choice. Some of us won't commit to a church. Forget our church, any church. 
Because that might mean something's required of us. We might got to do something. We might got to love somebody we don't want to love. We might have to stay a little longer and like be nice to somebody. Or, you know, maybe we have to set something up. Or maybe we have to listen to somebody who's preaching like Pastor Howard or somebody who's, who's saying something. And we won't want to commit to a place. What if I get a better job in a sexier town than Charlotte? I can't commit here. I can't make a stay here. What if, what if they, they let me go to the village or something? You know, what is something cooler than that? Or Atlanta or wherever you deem cooler. Maybe it's country and it's even better that way. There's a lot of cooler, sexier places to live than Charlotte. So we don't commit grow, uh, pursuing its purity and peace and its, its, uh, its beauty and its growth. And some of us can't commit to people, whether in marriage or friendship. What if someone else comes along I want to be friends with? What if I regret it later? What if there really is a better option? Friendships or marriages. Against options. Pro-commitment. It is counterintuitive to us. Now, I could spend the rest of this sermon being grumpy old man, talking about how in the day we used to have to make much more commitments than y'all did, and you young folk, you whippersnappers. But you wouldn't hear because they've already done that to us and we haven't listened. You wouldn't hear just like the Corinthians uh, because we want to be sovereign over our daytimers. You wouldn't hear because some of us hyperventilate when we talk about committing to even a week out. We have turned a deaf ear to an older generation. But I thought about this. I want one application to start this whole thing off. We're getting on the holiday season. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. I would like for you to do one thing. Ask someone in your family or greater family while you're in the holiday seasons who's older than you, a good generation older than you. Ask them about commitment. Ask them what it's like to live doing something for 30 years and just get a gold watch and see if there's some, there's some beauty there too. Ask them what it's like to live with the same person for 50 years and see if there's some beauty for there too, even with the scars. Ask somebody about it and let them talk. Just listen. Don't, you know, have this kind of predisposed uh, uh, opinion of them selling out to the man or whatever. Just listen. Just listen. You might find beauty there because that's exactly what I think Paul is actually doing for us. He's not really doing the old man thing where he's just kind of being grumpy towards us and telling us that you guys don't know how to be committed. And, you know, back in my day, you had to be committed. He's actually putting forth uh, uh, something that's beautiful for us. He's talking about how commitment is uh, is um, two sides of the same most famous coin in all of Jesus's teaching. That the commitment or committing is an act of love of neighbor and it's an act of love of God. And so what he does is one of the ways you can divide up how he's talking about this thing is uh, he's, he's encouraging us, he's wooing us to the beauty of what commitment might look like. Committing as love of neighbor. Look at uh, uh, verses uh, 12 and on. Uh, I'll read it for us. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no, for the Son of God 
Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. This is, just so you know, on an aside, this is precisely the verse that, uh, that Sandra Carver, uh, Amanda's mom, uh, brought to me about what yeses and nos and commitments were. Um, so, you know, good disciple, good, good person uh, who is, uh, who's teaching you about stuff, uh, does conviction and tells you you need to do something different, but does so by uh, putting scripture before you. Um, so what I want you to do is kind of look at the concerns that are here. If you, if you, if you think about what's going on and uh, some of the beauty of what's going on, I want you to, I want you to think about this verse 12 um, uh, that, uh, let's see, that our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relationship with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. One of the key essentials, one of the beautiful things about commitment is that it's not first about you it's about the other, or it's not first about the committer, but the one to whom you are committed. Paul's writing this RSVP, and he's knowing things are at stake, and um, but he's thinking about them and how he's interacted with them and how his commitment to them needs to be shown forth for their good. I mean, he could easily just wipe his sandals off and say, forget you, you want to take your true apostles? Go ahead. No, but he's going to fuss about himself for them and tell them how much he tried to care for them so that they could hear, so that he could write the same this, this letter, so he could encourage them in their faith. The majority of this letter is not about self-defense or defense of his character, though there's some of it, but letting them know that he was thinking about them, especially in our relationship with you. And he has this kind of consistent attitude in verse 13. We do not write you anything that you cannot read or understand. I'm thinking about you. I'm trying to make it as clear as possible. And I hope that as you've understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. They are suspect of him. And he's attaboying them. They're wondering... How he can be trusted and he's saying, there's something going on in you. And I may not have been 100% clear or could have been clear, but it's, but, but my primary focus is on you, that I care for you and that you'll know and you can hear these words for me, from me. He even tells them that the reason he doesn't come and visit, why he's RSVP positively but did not show up, I call, uh, uh, as God is my witness, that it was in order to spare you that I did not come. He didn't come for them. It's about them. There's an other-centeredness, this this love of neighbor that the Lord calls us to and beautifies us in the commitment. He does it for them. And we don't know exactly. Some scholars say, what they were such a train wreck that he was going to have to come and kind of bring the hammer, you know, uh, and be rebu- have to rebuke them. And he was sparing them of that kind of, uh, uh, of uh, kind of cleaning the house. Others uh, say it's other things. But we're not exactly sure. But the point is that he's not focusing on him, but them. That's the point. He's not measuring what's easiest for him, best for his schedule. He's not asking about his boundary setting, but how they are doing, how they are experiencing his not showing up, how they are feeling. Others focused, a radically different way to do this. And I, I think this is one of the reasons why we have so much trouble with our maybe Evite decisions. Because we're thinking about ourselves first. How is this going to inconvenience me? How am I going to have to give up part of myself? We're not, we don't do roadies or hospitalities because uh, they may not fit into our schedules. We don't share in children's co-ops. I'm just, I mean, add anything to this. We don't uh, join church. We don't even join neighborhood associations because it will invade our sovereign calendars. 
We don't pursue our, go- or, or boyfriends because we're worried about us feeling, girlfriends or boyfriends, because we're worried about us feeling rejected, us being misunderstood, or even friendships for that matter. There is a common denominator with the way we normally do commitment, and that is if it's good for me, me, myself, and I, and that's where it's all wrong, where this gospel idea of commitment turns these things on their heads, and they ask things like, could the roadies use help? Could we use more people in hospitality? Would it be good for me to offer my house house for a children's co-op? What about them? You join the neighborhood association because... The neighborhood needs to be improved. And you're not worried about how this is going to affect me when I ask somebody out on a date. But don't they seem lonely? It'd be nice to take them out. No strings attached. You don't have to do all the craziness. Be secure enough to just ask. Maybe my friend or my spouse even is lonely. Maybe I should set some time. How is this going to affect them? It's a, it's a flipping of it. It's, not, it's, it's getting others focused and not self-focused. And I think there's something else to it. It's not just this kind of thinking of them, but there's a kind of submission to the relationship that occurs. Our conscience testifies that we've conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations to you, with holiness and sincerity from God. I want you to understand what's going on here. They have just indicted him for not caring for them. This is how it usually goes with me. for me. You tell me I've done something wrong. I wait three quarters of a second. And then I say, no, I have not. And you say, yes, you have. And, you know, this is how it goes. Then usually if I did something wrong, maybe oh, a day or two later, I'll go, man, I did something wrong. I should probably go talk to them. And then it'd take me another four days to actually get the courage up to then go tell you that I did something wrong. Right, Amanda? Is this how it goes? Yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> I didn't get an amen, so I'm doing all right now on that one. Uh, uh, so, um, so, but this is what he does. His first statement to them about this issue is the fact that he checked his conscience. He, he was others focused in another way and, and holding to the relationship in another way. We could have a breach of relationship here. Let me check myself. He does a conscience check. He doesn't just start with, no way, I don't want to talk to you. He doesn't flex his apostolic muscles and say, submit, dadgummit. He doesn't, you know, bring down the heat of the law on them. He says, let me check. Now, maybe different. I mean, I like what I checked and and figured out. Let me ask some people. For us, we we don't have the red line to God like he does, uh, like he did. So maybe we should ask some other people. Do you think I'm kind of a pain on that? Maybe somebody can help you, you know, kind of talk it through. There's a humility to it. And it's a submission to to the relationship. He is actually receiving an indictment all the way through to get back into relationship with him. Right? For their good, he's suffering. It's a submission to the relationships. We've, um, uh, he checks, he does the gut check, he goes through that. And I think uh, those instincts, again, just prove that it's both other-centered and it's submissive to, to wanting something better than just uh, being right. I think if we did this, if we had this instinct, most of our conflicts would, uh, would be ten times easier. Because, y'all, there are hard relationships in this room. There are really hard relationships in this room. And it's not just race and it's not just socioeconomics. It's just people sometimes. And they're real complicated by all those things, but they're hard relationships in this room. But if you're thinking about the other, 
If com- the beauty of the commitment thinking about the other and submitting to the glory of the, the future relationship or even the present relationship, if breached, you're called to a beautiful and wonderful thing. And I promise you, you'll see amazing things come from it. I knew it was going to happen. One second. And then this requires something else. Not that we just think about them. And not that we just submit to each other in relationship. But that we have some kind of hope for them. And they're all kind of tied together. Together Again, he's moving out of um, what he could be doing is retaliating. And what he is doing is reconciling. He's trying to communicate with clarity and love. And he says... Um, I'm boasting about you. I want you to boast about me. We can come together on the day of life of Christ Jesus and boast together about our understanding and our connection and the beauty of our relationship. That commitment will 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 uh, what will flow forth from that commitment is a hope, the beauty of trueness and goodness in their relating. Now. You've got to be really careful, careful here when you start talking about these kinds of commitments because some of us commit selfishly by giving ourselves completely to a situation and have no boundaries. And what we're really doing is the most important thing for me is that I need to be needed. Right? And so it's another selfish act. But you just get to use those people by, letting, by them letting you serve. You know? That's totally it. I, I know y'all. There's plenty of martyrs out here. I know y'all. That would do that. But... Again, this is undoing it when you think about um, the, not the self, but the other. You're thinking about how to care and love and commit to the other. So I was thinking about how what, what, a good way to just kind of explore what this might look like. When you're thinking about them, when you're, um, when you're, you're submitting to them, and you're, um, and you're hopeful for them. And I was trying to think of some example that could, could kind of like turn it on its head and get all the complicated parts to it. And I'm thinking about this. A marriage relationship... That turns abusive. Now are you going Georgia? You want me to submit to somebody so I can get, so I can get, I can get clocked again? Are you saying uh, that, uh, that I need to be thinking about them as they hit me? Well, no. <laughs> but the principles still stand. I'm not saying don't um, uh, just go ahead and hope for them and submit to them. That's not what I mean. What I mean is this. As you leave the house and you protect yourself, you're doing two things. You are protecting yourself, but you're not just protecting yourself. You're protecting them from their own violence. You're protecting them from the, their rage uh, uh, taking over and dehumanizing them more. And every time I bring up this concept, I always bring up Martin Luther King, right? The... Uh, civil rights movement is not just for the oppressed, but for the oppressor. The person behind the hose is being dehumanized. You want them to stop for their sake, for oppressor and oppressed, right? That's what's going on here. So as you leave the house, as you call the cops, you are saying, no, you're in breach of our relationship. And so now there's a submission to the relationship, not a submission to the violent hand, a submission to the relationship. And Sonia Faloya, one of our members who works with domestic violence all the time, has said to me time and time again, remember, the abuser has dignity and, uh, too that we need to deal with. We need to deal with that too. And so there's this uh, healing and restoration of the relationship. There's this, not healing, there's this, there's this uh, intense desire to, uh, to have some type of submission to the relationship so the relationship can stand, not in the ugly way it was, uh, the way, the ugly way it has played out and the way it should be. 
The submission to the relationship, to the marriage, if you will. Now, the marriage might get breached. The person may not repent. I'm not saying jump back into the into crazy situations. You know me better than that. I'm a justice-loving fool. So I'm not going to want you to get uh, hurt or, or, or injured again. But then there's also a sense of hope that maybe if repentance happens in the day of, Lord, in the, day of the Lord, we will be able to be reconciled. And when I say reconciled, I do not mean restored. Because you may be reconciled through plexiglass. It may be right and honoring until the day of the Lord Jesus for there to be separation between you and the family. But if there's not, and the abuse isn't toward kids, then you say, I honor you as father, even though you couldn't have been husband. Or I honor as your wife, even though you couldn't have been. And you, and you uh, set up situations where the, that can be fostered in good and beautiful ways. So I'm, I purposely am picking one of the harder ones to apply this to, so that we can see that the, the, the principally that this all still stands. That we think of the other in our commitments. Even when we're setting back good, right boundaries that the Lord would have us keep. We think of the other. We, um, we submit to the, the beauty of the relationship and what's right and good and true about it. And we have hope. That's a radical relationship that we're called to. Now, again, it could be through plexiglass. And it might rightly be through plexiglass. It could be with someone else in handcuffs. I'm okay with that. But it still includes the other being thought of. A submission to what's right in that relationship and hope for them. That's all love of neighbor. Committing as love of neighbor. There's a second side, and that's committing as love of God and love of the gospel. Look what he does in verse 20 here. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by those to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He sets his seal of ownership on us. And put his spirit on our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Commitment displays reliance upon God. It is an act of love of God and it displays that. You already saw that part with the hope that God might do something in there. That the day of the Lord might come. But I just want you to look at the kind of language that that exists in this passage. Uh, in verses 12, 18, 19, 20, and 21, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read through the kind of uh, reliance that Paul has on God here. Um, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. You see that source talk? All this kind of commitment is something that's a source from God. We have done uh, so not according to worldly wisdom, but by God's grace. But by relying on God's grace. You see that? That source again? But in Him... It has always been yes. You see all that source, all that kind of per, the, uh, uh, where it's coming from? And so through him, there's all this in him and Christo, uh, in Christ, in him, all this stuff, this whole source of stuff is, is a God-reliant life. It doesn't exist outside of it like I could pull myself up by bootstraps and just commit my way on into like, a, you know, it's like steel-faced or flint-nosed or I don't know, I'm just making stuff up now. Just, you know, some type of, uh, of strength forward that you do all on your own. It sources in God. It sources in a Savior. And its purpose goes alongside that. This God-reliance has its purpose as God himself. It's for God's glory, verse 20 or 21. Now it's God who makes us both, uh, both us and you stand firm in Christ. Again, the in Christ for his glory. And this is so weird because you have this letter about an RSVP problem. And he starts bringing Jesus into it. What? What? Why would you do something like that? That just seems kind of odd. You know, I mean, how about just, I'm sorry I didn't show up. You know? 
But he starts bringing, about, bringing what Jesus is and who, he's, who he is and what he's done. And what, what he's doing here is he's saying that, uh, that, that all the promises of God are yes in Christ. Now let me let you know what that thing sounds like for a Jewish person who's getting this letter. All the promises of God? The term for this in, in, uh, in theology speech and also in first century Jewish culture would be covenant. Promise. Pact. Uh, you could say it was a contract if you wanted to. Um, there is a, a sense, a deep sense in which that God has promised his relationship with his people throughout time. Genesis 3.15, after the creation, things go wrong, the fall happens, and what does God say? Yahweh turns... Uh, 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 turns in, to the three of them, Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And he says, um, "He says that uh, his, his, he says that you're going to be my people." He makes a promise there, and he says that uh, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. It's a promise. It hasn't happened. Doesn't happen in Genesis. Doesn't happen for thousands of years later. But the seed of the woman will crush his head. This pure seed will come one day from the, from from Eve and or Mary's womb and will come untainted and crush what is evil and duplicity and faithlessness that exists. I will be your God and you will be my people. To use a strange word, it's a mantra of the Old Testament anew. It goes over and over and over again. He does it with Noah. When Noah, it, it, um, is, he says that he will never ever flood the earth again. And he puts a rainbow as a sign up there that says, uh, says that it will not happen. I'm committed to you. Go and repopulate the earth. I will love you. You, I will be your God and you will be my people. He does it with Abraham when he takes Abraham out and says, look at the stars. Now look at your barren wife of 90 some years, uh, uh, 90 some years old. Your children will outnumber the stars. His promises, his promises over and over again. And he does it again with, uh, with, with this kind of, I will be your God and you will be my people. This covenant, this promise making, this commitment that he has. And you read through the whole Bible. I, there's some really weird places in our scriptures. I don't know if you know this with this whole commitment thing. He actually asks a prophet, Hosea, to marry a prostitute. He asks her to marry a prostitute to be a symbol of the way we treat God in relationship. The prophet... Us, the prostitute. I am married to you. I'm committed to you. I will be your God and you will be my people. There's, in, in Ezekiel, it amps up the image even more. Checking kids. There's, um, there's, uh, there's an image of his, him rearing a child in Ezekiel 16. And it says that she spreads her legs upon the dais, exposing herself to all lesser lovers. And he says, I will clean you. I'll bring you to myself. I will be your God and you will be my people. He is committed to us. And all those promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Because it's not just God reliance. It's gospel celebration that is commitment. Look, y'all, all those covenants had promises tied to it, but they had what theologians call self-maledictory oaths. Self-maledictory oaths. Oaths, not oaths. Uh, oaths, which means, and it's an ancient Near Eastern phenomenon, happens in all sorts of oaths and promise-keeping and covenants. What means is, uh, if I lie, stick a needle in my eye. Right? If I'm going to tell a lie, I'm going to self-maledictory oath, I'm going to self-bad-happen oath, 
that if I breach this oath, you can injure me. Stick a needle in my eye if I'm lying. Does that make sense? A fancy term for self knocked is stick a needle in your eye. What Jesus does, what God does through this whole thing, through, uh, and we'll give you Noah and uh, Abraham, and then Jesus as an example, is that, is that, do you know that there is no word for rainbow in the scriptures? The word is bow, as of bow and arrow. How is the bow pointed? At heaven. The bow is pointed at heaven as if the arrow would be shooting forward. The vow is, I will keep this promise, or I will have a, uh, or, the bow is pointed towards me. Now, that sounds a little bit cheesy and weird. And like, Georgia, would you make that up in some world footnote somewhere? Let's go to the next one. Now, this is assuming that self-matter victory oaths are all over the ancient Near East, okay? The next one, Abraham. This is more explicit. I don't know if you know what that covenant is when he's telling about the stars. You know what happens? He actually, before, uh, right afterward, he actually uh, has Abraham cut open um, animals, and make a pathway through. And the blood of the animals is the stick a needle, stick a needle in your eye moment. You know, where uh, if, I, if I breach this vow of I be your God and you'll be my people, then you'll end up like the animals. Or I'll end up like the animals. You know what the scripture says after he cuts it all open and does all this stuff and he's about ready to do it? It's like signing triple, triple, in triplicate on a contract. You know, this will happen or else, right? You know what he does? What God does? God puts Abraham asleep. God puts Abraham asleep because he knows that he cannot handle the covenant. But only God can handle the covenant. So if anything happens on this breach, if you being my God and I will be in your people, you're, if you mess up or I mess up, may I be like the animals. You starting to figure out why this is yes and amen in Jesus? Because blood had to be spilled. Blood had to be spilled and was spilled at the cross. Where things become yes and amen. Where the contract is secured, secured and all the promises, all the promises, all the promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. All of them. And it explores our, I mean, it explodes our idea of commitment. He is our God and He will be our people even when we reject Him. When we are spread on the dais. That He will be uh, loving to His church no matter what we do. He keeps His covenant. His promise is for us until the day of the Lord. He will keep us and He will bring us home. And this gives us an invincible ability to commit to because we're already safe because we have one who commits bigger than us. So we can even mess up in our commitment and we say, I'm sorry. And we look at the cross and say, yes, this is for me too. Even in my failures, in my faults, in my train wreck of a life, in my hyperventilating because I can't commit to friends or I fear once again that people are going to uh, think I'm uh, uh, weird or whatever it is when I try to pursue a friendship. No, you are secured. You are his God. He is your God and you're his people if you come to him through Christ Jesus. He is yes and amen to us. Sealed. You hear that language that's in that sealed, uh, uh, deposited secured and that's what frees us to commit we don't commit because we fear we're going to lose something when you have everything in Christ Jesus you can commit because it wasn't yours to lose and you got it when you lose it it's his and it's him and he is our way forward whether we're the great good boy scout committers or we're terrible at it 
We have a king who is committed to us, who is our bridegroom and will bring us to the wedding feast one day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would do that very thing. You would bring us to the feast. That you would open up our hearts and minds and and our and our voices and our mouths even now. That you would give us faith to feed. And we would come to your table with thanksgiving, knowing that you are our God. And because of Christ Jesus, we can be your people. Amen.